following my instincts, making sure that I've been a part of things that I feel good about, that feel like they're actually resonating with, you know, on a, on a personal level, on an artistic level. That has led me into the places where I am now. Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. Hey, rock stars, it's your host, Lid Shaw, and welcome back to Recording Studio Rockstars, the podcast bringing you into the studio to learn from recording professionals so that you can make your best record ever and be a rock star of the studio yourself. My guest today is my good friend, Pat Sansone, a prolific and talented multi-instrumentalist, songwriter, and Grammy-nominated producer. Pat's early bands include playing guitar with Beagle Voyage and Stretch Armstrong, awesome (laughs) name, a rock band influenced by Black Sabbath and the Butthole Surfers. Thank you so much for allowing me to say Butthole (laughs) Surfers on my podcast. And then his own power pop band, Birdie. Is that fair to say power pop? Yeah. yeah. All right, cool, cool. I'm not cool. afraid of it. All right, don't be afraid, man. In 1999, you know, I'm going to say this. I actually, I crossed it out, but I put it, I'm going to put it back in. In 1999, when Prince was getting ready to party and they were landing that funny looking spaceship on the moon, remember, remember Space 1999? Yeah, oh, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So back when all that stuff was supposedly going to happen, Pat was also forming his band, The Autumn Defense, in New Orleans with his friend John Sturrett of Wilco. They went on to record four full-length albums, The Green Hour in 2000, which I helped record at Alex the Great in Nashville and then at Engine in Chicago, and then Circles in 2003, which I recorded right here at the Toy Box studio when it was still in my house with cables running all over the place. In fact, it was Pat who aptly named my studio the Toy Box Studio after recording here while surrounded by my collection of toy instruments. That's right. That's right. (laughs) You get the credit, dude. The Autumn Defense then went on to make their self-titled album, The Autumn Defense, in 2006 and Once Around in 2010. And we actually have made five full-length Oh, well done. Cool, man. We, We put one out in 2014, and the name of the album is Fifth, because it is our fifth full-length album. There you go. <laughs> album titling can get so challenging, can't it? Um, is that the one that has a merry-go-round with swings coming off That it? one is, that is Once Around. Okay, yeah, that, that makes sense, doesn't that it? Came, that uh, came out in I could have thought harder about that question. <laughs> All right, so while living in both Nashville and New York, Pat worked as a producer and a studio musician. He contributed to albums by Joseph Arthur, Andrew Bird, Josh Rouse, Mavis Staples, Swan Dive, Jennifer Jackson, Ryan Adams, The Clientele, and others. And in 2004, Pat joined Wilco following the departure of the multi-instrumentalist Leroy Bach. Am I saying that right? That's, that's right, yeah. Okay, groovy. And now Pat plays guitar, keyboard, maracas, and several other instruments, <laughs> as well as singing backup vocals with Wilco. He's also involved in the writing and recording of Wilco's albums, Sky Blue Sky, Wilco, and co-producing The Whole Love in 2011. Pat has also created a book of photography called 100 Polaroids, a collection of Polaroid photographs taken with an SX-70 camera from his travels with Wilco and with the Autumn Defense. 
and he has worked with many great musicians and artists along the way, including Dawes, Jamie Lydell, Phil Selway of Radiohead, The Future Monarchs with Josh Shapira, Elizabeth Cook, Garrison Starr, Richard Julian, and Will Kimbrough, to wow, name I, just I, a few. I, I forgot about some of this, man. Thanks. <laughs> that's a, that's a, it really helps to have somebody digging around in your Wikipedia <laughs> yeah. page, can right? You, can, you, can you write a, my bio for me? <laughs> you just rewrite take, my, wiki, my wiki. Steal this one, man. Yeah. Steal my bio. <laughs> um, so please welcome Pat Sansone to Recording Studio Rockstars. Pat, my good friend. Man, great. You're in the toy box. Are you ready to rock? I'm ready. I'm ready. Come on, man. Give it to us. Give I, it to us. I am ready to rock. All right. Now, that's that's what I'm talking about. I mean, you know, <laughs> you must have some, you know, cry of charge as you um, charge the stage, which you do a lot, you know. What's what's a typical routine for you as you're getting ready to hit the big stage? Mm, it's not so much a cry or a charge. It's more it's more of a, a, a saunter, like a saunter on, you know. A saunter. <laughs> yeah. Battle cry. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah, it's more of a it's more of a quiet quiet approach to the stage, um, and just kind of let let it unfold. Let the nice man. I can see your book when you your next book is going to be like the Zen approach to quietly approaching <laughs> zen, the stage. Zen or something and the, like and the art of of stage approach. Zen and the art of quietly approaching the stage. It's better. It's better. It's it's a better better way for me. You know, it kind of sounds like it could be a Portlandia skit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to be honest. All right, so Pat, I've done my long-winded introduction to you, but can you kind of fill in the gaps in your own words and tell us more about how you got started out in music and got into recording? Who well, are you, man? Well, how did how did it start? Well, I I'm as you said, I'm from Meridian, Mississippi. Meridian is an in you know, it's a it's a small town in Mississippi. It's it's not tiny. It's a, it's now it's a town of about 50,000 people, might have been a, a little bit more people there when I was growing That's up. That's 49,000 more than you. Uh, 49,999, sorry. <laughs> right, right. I think I know most of them, but... The, That's why uh, I went into podcasting, not math. Yeah. there's. It's a bit of a musical town. P. It's one of the things it's famous for is that PV Electronics is, oh, no shit. is from there, based there. Started there, Hartley PV. Went to high school with my mom, and <laughs> he awesome. um, he started he started PV in his. Uh, from what I understand, he just started in in his garage, and uh, you know, very homespun. And is he still living? He is. He is. He he is still living. And he still runs PV. Do you know? Uh, I don't. I, or I would it sort assume, of moved on. To... I would. I would assume. I don't really know. I don't know a, a ton about the the details of, of PV <laughs> well, of right, this so day, you, but when I but when I was growing up there, um, I mean you know PV was everywhere, and my first guitar was a P, was a PV, my first amp of course was a PV, you know every musician in town played PV, and most of them also worked at PV because PV they owned that town. Well, every every single bit of PV gear was made in Meridian, Mississippi. I think up until. Probably into the late '90s, maybe maybe even longer. I'm not sure, but um, so you know. And there are a lot of musicians around town. Um, uh, you know, we ha I had some family friends that were involved in, in the Muscle Shoals scene a bit in the '70s. And um, what's the proximity between Meridian and Muscle Shoals? Uh, probably, I would say probably five hours or something like that. Okay, but um, the um, my grandmother was a performer. My mother was a singer. My my father a performer and and also a promoter in our town. And he 
put on uh, shows all through the um, 70s, 80s, and still still puts things on today. When he was really active in that was in the 70s and, and the 80s. So I grew up getting to see a lot of incredible, um, you know, legendary acts, you know, wa- watching from the wings and and watching them rehearse and watching them set up and, you know. Kind yeah, of- I remember you telling me stories about that. I, I felt like you described it as a really beautiful theater that, that you booked. Yeah, it was a, th- a theater of uh, holds about sixteen hundred people. It's you know it was built in nineteen twenty. It's one of those you know you know early twentieth century sort of movie palace, very ornate. Yeah, theaters yeah. really red velvet, right? Exactly, Re- really magical. And um, you know, I, I got got to see people like Ray Charles and Gladys Knight, and he would try to keep a mix of different styles every year. So one night there might be an R and B act. On a Friday, and then on Saturday, a country act, and then the next Friday there would be sort of a rock and roll act, and and the that's next cool. Night, so it was, it was like every thing. weekend for a while. For for it was every week. It was what a trip in the month of April every year, every weekend. Did you and, have the Queen of Soul? You know, Aretha never played, but um, but Gladys Knight played, and and I have this incredible memory of watching her talking about walking onto the stage. It's a great memory for me because I remember. Meeting her early in the day, you know, I was about six years old, I guess, meeting her early in the day when she arrived with her entourage and uh, saying hello to her. And she was kind of dressed in her daytime outfit. And she looked, you know, she looked amazing, of course. But and then seeing her again, like just before she was about to take the stage and she had on like a silver sparkly dress and she just looked like a star. And it was I think it might be the first time I really have a a, a deep memory of being in the presence of a star, you know, what star, yeah, and you know, and, really. and kind of like standing next to her as they announce her name and as she quietly approached the stage. <laughs> you know, really great. I love those memories. You know, and, and I learned a lot. Um, I think you know. I think I learned a lot just by being able to be around all that and, and absorb it and watch um, watch the bands as they rehearsed, you know, in the day. Was it a big stage where they have full, you know, like large big band ensembles yeah. and things like that? Yeah, and a lot of times, like, you know, like Ray Charles, or, you know, he would bring his own band, certainly. Uh, but there were times when maybe like an act would come through and they would hire local musicians, Um and so, you know, the musical director would have to get there, you know, would get there early. And the Chuck mu- Berry, for example, right? He was notorious <laughs> for always using the house the band. House band right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there was a good jazz, uh, there was a, a good jazz um, lab at the community college in our town. So some good, some really good players. So a lot of those guys um, ended up, you know, backing up some of these, some of these artists. Right on. So what was the first instrument you were playing? Were you pl- picking up piano or guitar or something like that? Taking lessons as a kid? Yeah, I started taking piano lessons at probably age five, I would think. Um, and, um, and my sister, who's a year younger than, than I, she, she also, we, we both started around the same time. Uh, she's now, and she's now a piano teacher. And studied studied classical piano in in college. Uh, I went the rock and roll right, know, right. direction, and um, I I picked up the guitar at I think around age eleven, and um, at some point I started just spending all my time on guitar, and my my piano practicing kind of fell by the wayside. To the <laughs> frustration well, it hasn't of my hurt teacher. you none. I've seen you play it; hadn't hurt you none. Yeah, but you know it's funny because I, it took me another seven years before I fi- first picked up a guitar, mm. and I always had this sense in my teens and twenties that 
the difference between playing guitar at 10 and playing guitar at 18 is huge. I think so. Well, I think you know? everything, I mean, I think just your, your brain is so malleable at age, you know, at that, those, in those young years. You yeah. Know, those first years you learn so much so quickly. Mm-hmm. Well, so, all right. So you did that. Um, you went on to start bands and everything. Were you in Meridian? No, you were in New Orleans when you and John started the Autumn Defense, the Autumn Day. Yeah, I had the met the Autumn D. The Autumn D. I'd met John. I had met John several years before. I'd met John in the early '90s. I think when I was doing, when I was in my band, uh, doing a band called Stretch Armstrong. Right. Yeah. Tell us about that. <laughs> There's another Stretch Armstrong that actually had some some success, kind of in the in the punk rock. Yeah, well, I was going to say there was one that you would find at Toys R Us, rock stars. Yeah. If you're not familiar with Stretch Armstrong. It was a classic toy for us growing up. It was like this rubberized dude that you could just stretch. You know, they'd show two kids grabbing arm in arm and just like yanking them all the way across the driveway. (laughs) But the thing was, the real story was that he had this green goop inside yeah, his he was, body. Yeah, was he was like, he was goopy. That was that ended up being the the real reason that everybody wanted to play with. The, with yeah, you wanted to rip his arm off and then see what came see out. That goop. <laughs> well, the band, yeah, our band was pretty goopy. We were like a kind of a sludgy. We were like we were definitely a sludgy, goopy, heavy, heavy rock band. It was fun. Some of the other music I was doing. Parallel to that was very, you know, sensitive and hard, hard on its sleeve. And so Stretch Armstrong was a, a fun way to just kind of, just to rock really and just be silly. And, and so, uh, so unexpected. I mean, the Butthole Surfers were a really serious <laughs> band, you know. They, 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 they did rock though. It's funny though, you know, I, I'm not sure. I think I know who wrote that description for, for the, for the wiki. And if if it's who I think it is, he was a buddy of ours in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, which is where I went to college. Who ran the the college radio station there? So I think that's his description. Nice. And he, he was just a wanted to put surfers butthole fan. surfers in a in a Wikipedia description. All right. So um, I like to ask our guests to kind of launch us off on the podcast with an inspirational quote. You got anything to get us excited about <laughs> hitting the studio and making records? Uh, an inspirational quote. Well, I. I did see that in the in the prep uh, dossier, um, <laughs> and uh, pretty you much know, you, anything you say is inspiring to me, Pat. Well, you know, I the only thing that really that I can really say that that comes to mind is just, and it's very simple, and and I hesitate to to say it without sounding silly, but I mean, I think that the one thing that I try to just remember to do when I'm working on things is to is to listen, listen, listen with my ears, you know. Listen with your ears and work from your heart. If I can kind of keep those things at the center of my approach, I feel like I'm making the right decisions. You know. So by listen, do you mean look at the waveforms and make sure they're all <laughs> lined up in Pro Tools? I have decided, you know, I. it's funny. I started doing this uh, a few years ago, and I, I think part, part of what inspired me to do this was our buddy Brad Jones, because... Our our friend Brad, great producer, great musician, was working with him on something, and I noticed that he had uh, turned in in the Pro Tools session. He had turned all the waveforms to black, right? So that there weren't any none more black, no no colors for those waveforms. And if I'm correct, his reasoning was that he he didn't want his he didn't want to be influenced by the visual 
preference of certain colors to others. He just didn't want to have that stimu- stimuli affecting the way he was making decisions. Yeah. And it, may, it did make a lot of sense to me. And um, Well, he had. A, I remember there was a story to it, too, where he felt like he was using the colors initially, and then he went back and forth in something, and he realized he was picking the one that was lime green or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. And that, that was why he was picking it, not because it sounded better. So he, so he decided to just turn off all colors. Yeah, and... I don't necessarily do that because I, but what it did encourage me to do and something that I like to do when I'm, when I'm working is to turn off the monitor, just turn it off um, when I'm listening back to things, you know, like after I've been working a bit and I kind of want to see where we are, or if I'm, or if I'm playing a mix for, um, for people, I turn the monitor off because Mm -hmm. I started to notice like, you know, you know how it is, you know, you come into a studio, somebody presses the space bar to play something and people just stare at the screen. It's just what we do. You know, there's, there's a, there's a screen there. So we look at it. We didn't used to remember we used to look between a pair of speakers over the console and there was either glass Mm -hmm. that was looking out into the other room. So you were seeing people out there, which was kind of fun. Mm -hmm. Imagine that seeing Mm -hmm. people. Right. Or you just looked at, you know, nothing, right. whatever. Yeah, or you just close your eyes. Look at a painting. Yeah, yeah. So so that's just a that's just one little one little method for me that help that helps me I think actually be a better listener. Well, there was at one point a plugin. I don't remember who made it, but there was a plugin that you could put on the master bus so that when you hit play and the plugin was enabled, it would turn your whole screen off and blank your screen out for you on playback. That's a great... That's which a, I think was a really cool idea. Yeah. But now that we're talking about your theater in Meridian, uh-huh. I'm, now I'm coming up with this new idea, which is like, I think we need to develop like red velvet curtains that close mm. like a movie theater screen over your screen. Oh, you know, that's and you just awesome. like So you yeah. just, like, just close the screen, yeah, the, curtains the curtains close, close and yeah. listen back. I like It'd be it. pretty cool. I like it. Or you could just poke your eyes out before listening, but don't do that. Don't <laughs> no, do that. No, no, Rockstars, no, 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 please no. don't do that. No, no, no. All right. So um, now, and I know, I know this would be unprepared and I don't know whether you got something or not, but how about some, just some really cool shit that people have said on tour? Anything you remember <laughs> like John saying or <laughs> Jeff saying or something, something where you're like, oh, it was great. It really, oh, really oh, made sense. Oh boy. I don't know. Well, Anybody have we, to come back to yeah, that Yeah, spin one. back on that. If you think of anything during this interview, the bring it back. A lot of, a lot of years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you learned it. You'd, you had to forget more things than you could ever possibly That's remember. That's true. That, that is the truth. All right. Well, so now, Pat, um, I also like to, you know, you've done a lot with your recording and career and, you know, Grammy nominated. Um, you've made all kinds of great records, toured the world. Uh, help us humanize it a little bit and remind us that um, it's not always, you know, making hit records, you know, when you put your pants <laughs> on one leg at a time. Well, I, I mean, Tell it's, us about it's, a- it's mostly not making hit records in, in my in my. In my case. Well, tell us about like an important failure moment for you in the studio or just sort of on your your recording journey that became a real good learning lesson. Well, I mean, I think, you know, you know how it is, man. It's like, I think we learn, hopefully we learn stuff every time, even if we don't recognize what the thing is that we're learning. You know, I think if you're just present and you're just, you're... If you're present and you're, you know, you're really involved in in the project, in the process, you're engaged with the people you're working with, then you're going to learn stuff. It all influences itself. It's it's kind of one big conversation, I guess you could say. You know? Yeah. I don't know. So many things. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've been able to work with a lot of 
great engineers, yourself included. Thank you very much. <laughs> and uh, and I I'm feel really blessed that that is that that's been the case. I mean, I you know I've I've been able to work on some really cool records of as a as a player as a as a producer or both or um you know not so much as 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 an engineer um i i like to engineer i love sound i love mixing i love i you know i love being in the studio it's 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 my favorite thing um i always hesitate to call myself an engineer though because i know some i know great engineers um I I can run a session, I can I can mix, but I like working alongside with someone who really understands the the science and the mathematics of sound. I kind of feel like it helps me. It helps open up the part of my brain that's that's more of the creative producer and abstract side. Like stay focused on the music. Yeah, or just um not just on the music, but you know, also on the sound too because it's you know it's all part of the it's all part of it have you ever experienced this where when you're not turning knobs you hear something and you recognize it as being great so quickly Mm -hmm. but when you are turning knobs sometimes it's much harder to identify that thing as being great you would just keep turning the knob totally i mean that's the thing with sort of the the options that we now have you know working in the digital realm um if you know if you have if you have a big plug-in suite and there's a lot of great plugins now, you know, then you can just kind of keep twiddling, you know, you can just kind of keep, keep tweaking, keep going. And it is hard. That's what I'm saying, like listening with your ears, you know, like it is hard sometimes to, um, to not mess with it, you know. Tell us about a record that you remember doing that was severely limited, had some limitations on it for the mm-hmm. recording was did you ever make a record that was like had real strict limitations with the tools that turned out to be a really cool well i mean one thing the first one that i mean yes i mean certainly i mean i was working on records before before pro tools was around you know i mean i, I remember when you know when each town had a pro tools guy like who's the who's the pro tools guy and I think you were the Pro Tools guy <laughs> when I first met you. You were you those were, were the days. You man. were one those of the, the Pro Tools guys. But so yeah, I've I've worked on you know records with all kinds of various shades. Have you of done some live to two track records, for example, well, stuff like the, that? Well, the 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 one that comes to mind first is 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 working on Heartbreaker, the Ryan Adams first solo record, which we did just down the road here at Woodland Studios. Right. Was that with Ethan Johns? Was Ethan right? Johns was producing. And I had met him at Kingsway Studio in New Orleans because he, Trina Shoemaker, brought him in to play some drums on a Matthew Ryan record. And I knew Matthew from living here in Nashville at the time. When Ethan came to Nashville to do Ryan's record, he called me in to, to play on him, you know, said, we're not really using a lot of outside musicians. It's mostly just me and Ryan, but we're bringing in a couple of people. So, you know, you want to come by and play, play some stuff. And, um, that was actually, you guys recorded that over at Woodland Studios. We did that where I interned. Oh, right. Right. So yeah, we did that. But I was gone by the time you guys did that. That was, I think, 99, if I'm not. Right. That, that famous year when Prince was getting ready to (laughs) party and, um, and and they were landing spaceships and the moon was 
leaving the earth or something like that. And before before Five Points was was the hottest neighborhood in in the U.S. Yeah, but that was recorded very simply, very quickly. I mean, I you know, I get so many people asking me about that record and mentioning that record to me after all these years. And it's funny because it's probably the record I've spent, I spent the least amount of time involved with, you know, I mean, I was only there for a few hours on a Tuesday and a few hours on a Wednesday and that was <laughs> it, so you know, and I've had other records that I've labored over for months and months. That's and the funny thing about recording is it can, so much can be encapsulated forever and it can happen so quickly. Yes. I mean, I remember having to come to terms with the fact that I might work really intensely with a group of people for two or three days in the studio doing a record where you just become friends forever. Mm -hmm. And then you don't see them forever. Right. And then when you do, you can't remember who they <laughs> were. It gets hard, man. You, yeah. you know, it's like, it's if you do that a lot, I mean, you know, for you touring, obviously in shows and all the people you must meet on the road, it must be incredibly challenging to try and remember everybody and reconnect. But. Yeah, I'm terrible with names, but... But that's a good way of putting it, because if you, like we were saying before, if you're engaged, if you're present, and you're working with your heart in whatever you're doing, like you say, you know, you you might work really intensely on something for a short amount of time, but you're opening yourself up, you're opening up your creative self, and hopefully the people that you're involved with are doing the same thing, and you're connecting, and, and you know, it, it, it creates the thread of that's the thread of culture, you know, and, you know, that's, that's why the, and it comes through in music that, that's strong and that resonates. I think yeah. music that's strong and, and resonates has that as its foundation. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, Heartbreaker is obviously a very strong record. Um, I was listening to that just this summer, in fact, being amazed at how great it, it is. And I know that Ryan Adams is an incredibly talented an intense dude too. Mm -hmm. There's something about that record too, and about the way he did things that was like it was uh, it was new, but it was also familiar when you would hear it. You know, mm -hmm. he had this he had that real talent, which obviously you know you do too, doing that record together, of making something just remind you mm -hmm. of something. What what do you have to say about that? How important is it that music reminds us of something when we make it? Well, I think that's that's what it is. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's a reflection of you know, mu music is a is a reflection of of us, of what's happening in us and it's a very magical way of connecting us with something that's very close and essential and and human, you know. So that familiarity, you know, like for something like Heartbreaker, it's familiar because it's just, it was very immediate. It's very immediate. You know, there was no, I mean, it was, it's a pretty simple concept. Let's put you, let's put this singer songwriter in front of a mic and get a, you know, get some good musicians around him and, and, and record it. <laughs> yeah. Know? And I try mean, to get it to feel great. You know? Yeah. I mean, and you know, that, you know, uh, Woodland is, was a great studio, great room, uh, classic, classic gear. It was recorded to tape. Um, some of those tracks, I don't know if all of them were, but I think most of them were recorded live to, to two track. Um, 
So that's a there was a very there was a very direct path between the oh live vocal too probably. live vocal yeah yeah so let's very talk direct. about that for a sec because I think that's really important sometimes you know live vocal is the only way to get a performance that sounds like that well I remember when we were making circles uh, right up up at your yeah, house right. Um, in the dining room, in the hallway, actually, you guys were singing. And yeah, playing. and we we were did we did a tune. Um, it's the opening track from from the record, and it's called Silence. And um, that track is for the most part just a performance. It's a lot. It's a live vocal. Brad Jones was playing organ, I think. Um, I think John was playing bass. I was playing acoustic guitar. Um, but I, I I can I can remember very specifically this this the way the room felt the the way the lighting was in there just that feeling being really um, just happy that we were able to capture that moment yeah. you know just that very specific moment and uh, it's one of my favorite Autumn Defense tracks and it's and and it's one that was basically recorded live. Yeah, I remember that one. It was really cool. And that was um, one of the ones I just really remember being your song, you know? Mm-hmm. It, was, it was the Pat Sansone moment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, that was kind of uh, the Green Hour, the first record we did that that we all worked on, was John's compositions that I had helped, right. that I helped him, yeah. kind of helped, that I helped arrange and and helped, you know, and produced and, and um, kind of helped finish a few of the songs. And that was a record that took place in a lot of studios. And yeah, well, three three different studios. Mostly, we we started it at uh, we started the tracking at Kingsway. Oh, it was at Kingsway, and they they had the Calrec console, right? Well, the Calrec the Calrec was actually at our other our small studio in New Orleans, which was called Magazine Sound. Um, and that was when I when I was living in New Orleans in the mid nineties. I became friends with these guys who started their own studio just kind of by cobbling together gear and my buddy Glenn Graham from blind who was playing with blind metal at the time. He right. had some, he had some gear that he had parked there and my good friend, Mike Napolitano, who's an amazing right. engineer. Nappy. Nappy. Yeah. He had some stuff there. So it was kind of our clubhouse studio. The Calrec was there. Great, great console. It ended up going to New York and living in a studio there for a little while, a private studio that where I actually was living on the couch. Right, yeah, <laughs> yeah it was that loft first studio year. in Soho, yeah, I think. In Soho, yeah. um, that was cool, man. I bet you missed that console for sure. I would, yeah, I wish that, it, I think it got, you know, it got disassembled and parted out. I, I would love to have They finally at least turned one it into channel. plugins, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if I could have one channel from that console. I slept under that console for, for a year, basically. <laughs> nice, yeah. All right, well, so let's fast forward a little bit. Let's take it up to the loft, working with Wilco, Mm -hmm. Chicago. Talk to us a little bit about the process. Maybe what did you learn from that process and the way that you make records with Wilco? How does it start? Where does it go? Well, the loft has has changed and, and grown over the years. When I first started doing anything at the loft, it was actually before I had joined the band because, you know, through my friendship with John and, and the Autumn Defense, you know, I would spend spend a lot of time in Chicago. And there was a time when the own when John had the only setup there where he had he John had like a, you know, a, a Digio one 
Pro Tools rig and, and some stuff and set up there. So we did some stuff there together. Eventually, the loft, you know, over the years has become, now it's, you know, an incredible facility for record making full of great gear and there's a Neve console there but there was a time when there was just a just a Digio one there was just a Digio one in the corner we were so yeah John and I did some some autumn defense recording there we recorded um some of our third record there but yeah now you know it's it's a it's a full on record making record making machine right and so rockstars to describe it it was your it's the rehearsal space it's the place where you guys could bust out all your full band setup and practice and play music. Right. So maybe by default, it becomes a bit of a writing space as well. Yeah. And it's then, just kind of, it was just, it's just Wilco world, you know, it's, it's like a, I don't know how many square feet it would be. It's, it's big, but just a big open industrial loft space on the North side of Chicago. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's where Wilco would rehearse. The offices were there for, for a while. HQ. HQ, yeah, and and as the as the collection of instruments grew and the the recording gear started to arrive, you know, now it's it's uh now it's kind of a it's 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 not so much a big open space anymore. <laughs> it's pretty much covered. Yeah, it's like every every inch right. is covered by by stuff. Um, tell us about a favorite new piece of gear that you've recently acquired. Anything kind of fun and cool? You're sort of putting your studio together now. I'm too. putting my studio together. Yeah, I've got. Um, uh, I, I work with a my friend uh, Josh Shapera, and we've been making records together in Chicago for about the last five years, I guess. We met in Chicago, and he uh, he had a studio there at the time called Black Sheep, and um, we yeah we we worked on a few things together. He uh, he let me um, do a lot of the overdubbing for Once Around the Autumn Defense record at his space, um, and then kind of in exchange. You know, I played on some sessions for him and we, we just realized that, uh, we were a good team and, uh, we took on, took on a few production projects together. So it's been a great partnership, but the idea is to, is to sort of move our operations from Chicago to Nashville sort of gradually. So I'm, I'm setting up some stuff here, but, uh, yeah, piece of gear. I don't know. It's, I don't know. I don't know if you just like acquired a new instrument that you were digging a lot. Um, well, I did just get I did just get a Universal Audio Apollo. Oh, cool! Which uh, which I think is a pretty uh, a pretty pretty fun piece of piece of gear. So, will that be your interface in the studio? You think that's going to be my interface? Yeah. Well, they sound fantastic, and you've got you know some of the best plugins that exist. Yeah, I mean it's pretty ast- it's pretty astounding. I mean it's a game changer. I think for our for our mixing. Do you, you think know. that you'll record through the plugins? Because that's one of their big features, right? I don't know. I haven't tried that yet. So I'm 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 curious to tread carefully. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, we've you know, we have I have a few pieces of outboard gear that that I kind of trust and and know. So I don't feel like I necessarily am gonna have to lean on that. Um, but who knows? I mean, it's, it's worth checking out. Well, what could be kind of fun to do with that would be to track the way you might track and then start tweaking out the mix just a little bit, you know, dial things a little more, push the compression, Mm -hmm. things like that. And then I don't know if you can then just kind of move those plugins over to the record side, Mm -hmm. but just start recording, Mm -hmm. you know, the track and the rest of the record that way and record through those same settings and see what you get. Have you done, have you done it? No, I'm just making shit up (laughs) as I go. (laughs) Do you, I'm trying to remember from, do you like to record through 
a lot of, well, do you like to record through processing? Well, I don't record through plugins because I don't have an Apollo. So or it just, was always, I, mean, hard, I mean, hardware, like do you? Yeah, but I mean, you know, what I actually found when I created my own studio was that, well, I don't have a lot of compressors. I do have a rack of gain brains, so I could kind of put compression on things if I wanted. But I've got my one eleven seventy six. But even with the eleven seventy six, sometimes I'm tracking on sessions, and I'm like, I just don't really necessarily feel like I need to use it on something. Mm-hmm. So I started using less processing on things and just more, you know, simple trying to get a good clean sound mm-hmm. straight to tape or Pro Tools. Mm-hmm. As I go, and I kind of learned that from Steve Albini too. Mm-hmm. When I first worked with him, I noticed that uh, I was at a stage where I felt like I wanted my drums to be exciting. So, to have exciting drums, you got to do all kinds of stuff to it, you know. Right. And then I started watching the way he recorded, and we were—I don't think we were using compression on anything. Mm-hmm. It was just, you know, careful positioning of mics. Mm-hmm. And so after that experience, I started recording all my drums where I don't use any compression on kick or snare or toms, mm-hmm. um, you know, or anything. Mm-hmm. I might, if it was there, I might experiment with something. But I just sort of found that, you know, there's a lot you can do just by trying to make sure that you're capturing the sound right without having to manipulate it. Mm-hmm. You know, so mm-hmm. I don't know if that's a helpful answer to your question, but no, yeah, I, I don't do a lot of processing necessarily. Yeah. yeah. Because then, then you're then you're you're kind of married to it too, you know. Yeah, so. and I mean, you know, you might want a little wiggle room. Mm-hmm. I think low cuts are really great to commit to. Um, I always add top end to the snare mic. The top snare mic, I find that a fifty-seven always needs brightening on top mm-hmm. of a snare. Mm-hmm. And then the kick drum, you know, I, I'm using a D one twelve, an AKG D one twelve inside the kick, almost always, and I'll find that that helps to suck out a little 270, I think is what my CalRec defaults to, and then maybe add just a tiny bit of top. Mm-hmm. So that's about it. Yeah, Everything yeah. else is just going straight to, straight to tape. Yeah. Have um, you been using tape? Uh, some, not, not a lot lately, because uh, the way that I tend to use tape in the studio is by request of the artist. So mm-hmm. if the artist feels like tape is important, then I'm all about it. Mm-hmm. But if they don't, well, then not only does it take a little bit longer to work with, but it costs more. So mm-hmm. I don't suggest it unless yeah. I'm not going to try and convince somebody that tape is cool. It's like, <laughs> right. if they think it's cool, it's cool. And we'll use it. If they don't care about it, I don't care about it. You know, at, at the, at the Wilco loft, we have a tape, we have a tape machine that's, that's always on. Um, and is it on right now? Sa- it's on that right now. <laughs> Sound passes through it, but we don't, uh, we don't necessarily always print to tape, but we at least go. Th- oh, cool! Because you're going through the transformers, but everything goes through the yeah, it goes through the electronics yeah. of the machine, and and I've done that, and it's just an it's just kind of uh, there's just just a nice X factor about that, you yeah. know. Maybe I need to do that again. Dang it! You should try. You could, you should check I it fire out. Fire up my tape machine. And we did. Josh and I did just. Um, we're working on a record uh, now, uh, a project that's based here in Nashville, and we. Recorded over at Club Roar. Oh, cool! Yeah, Robin Eaton's Robin studio. Robin Eaton's place, and um, printed. We recorded to tape, and it's the first time we've done a tape session in, in a in a while. And you immediately were so glad you did, and you're like, "Why was I not recording to tape five well, minutes ago?" I mean, it 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 definitely. You know, I mean, there were there were you know had its own challenges, but um, and we just had one 
reel of tape. So we would just we would just do takes on that reel, and then and then as soon as we were done, take a break, transfer transfer those into tools, and then you know start fresh again at the top. Yeah, at the top of the I've day. been and, using the same reels of tape for ten years, dude. <laughs> yeah. But it was you know it was appropriate for the music. And it was, you know, there was sort of an inspirational element about it that, you know, it was, it was fun. And, and I'm really happy that we did because I was actually just listening, opening some of those sessions last night and, and uh, the tones are, you know, nice, tapey. Yeah, it's got a thing. I love the sound of my tape machine. It's a MCI JH16. That's what we were using. Yeah. Yeah. I think, and in fact, I'm sure I got mine because I saw what Robin and Brad were doing and I just mm-hmm. copied those guys, you know. Mm-hmm. Copy, what is it? Copying is the greatest form of flattery, something like that. Imitation is the greatest Imitation, form of flattery. Go, yeah. um, all right. Well, so let's fast forward a little bit to these sessions you're working on right now. Let's talk more about how you're, like, what are you excited about as far as how you're producing this record that you're doing with Josh now? Um, talk about the musical aspect. Talk about working with the art, if you can. Mm-hmm. Talk about working with the artist. Talk about headphones versus no headphones, you know? Mm. Let's talk about how you capture inspiring music so that it's you're making a record that you really want to make. Well, you know, every 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 record is different. Every project has its own dynamic and you know, the 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 type of music, the style of music is going to dictate a lot of that. Um screw those other records. What about this one? Yeah, this record. Well, we we this is a this project is very, um, you know, there's there's a real classic rock element to to the music. Um, it, you know, how many pieces in the band? We were tracking, uh, we were tracking drums, bass. Uh, we were doing live vocals, and the the singer also plays uh, was would play acoustic guitar and piano. Um, were you playing an instrument during tracking? Only on there was only one tune where I played some bass because the the bass player had to um, had to leave town for the for the last uh, day or two. So, and you talked already about the power of having somebody engineer while you're getting to produce and just listen in. Who's mm-hmm. who's engineering with you? Uh, Josh was Josh was engineering. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, so you are, do you guys often sort of tag team on it, or does he? Do you tend to stick to the production side while he sticks to the engineering side it's really a it's it's really a a com it's 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 a combination of both i mean he he is um such a strong engineer you know i i defer to him uh to do the heavy lifting for the for the engineering um because he he knows he knows what he's doing he he really understands uh in in great depth you know mic placement and phase and and signal flow and um and I'm, but I, I'm there to make suggestions and, and, you know, we, if there's stuff that's coming back that, you know, can be better then we'll, you know, we'll adjust and discuss. What are some of the suggestions you remember making? Well, you know, it's usually things, it's, it's usually the things like, is this drum sound, do we need to get a drier drum sound for this? Like, is, is that going to be more in the personality of this? You know, can we, can we tighten this up or. And that's a little bit tricky at a whether, you know, it's roomy or dry or whatever. So, but I think this is a great question because I think that the rock stars listening, a lot of 
people are dealing with not perfect mm-hmm. control room environments. Right. So what are some of the ways that you manage um, an environment that you feel like is influencing what you're hearing while you're listening to it back? But I mean, like, do you have a, pa- a favorite pair of headphones that you pop on? To reference stuff, yeah, I've been using I've been using some uh, some Shure headphones. Uh, I wish I could remember the the model number for you right now, but well, I mean, it probably hardly even matters. It's like if they're the ones that you're used to, that yeah. might be the thing that matters. No, I, have, you know? I have a pair that I take with me everywhere I go. Yeah. To every session. Because, I mean, there's Even, a bunch of choices for headphones out yeah. there. Like everybody who's listening has got you know a different pair. But I think yeah. the take, key takeaway is being comfortable with a, a set. I remember. Um, do you remember, uh, was it Clay Jones? He was mm-hmm. a Mississippi guy yeah. that we, I worked with worked years on, ago. Oh man, we we worked on, I, well, Clay and Neil, uh, Nielsen Hubbard yeah. were in a band together Yeah, called, well, they were called Spoon actually. Um, <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh man. And they had to, ch- they had to change their name when the other Spoon uh, kind of came on the scene. They changed their name to This Living Hand. And this was probably around 94 uh, or somewhere in that zone, but I I played on their record they made at uh, Easley Studios in oh, Memphis. Oh yes, Doug, which I, is actually where Wilco made their first album. Oh no, kidding! Yeah, I actually when I Around went to Memphis, time. I did a Memphis segment this year, which was a lot of fun, mm-hmm. and I reached out to Doug and I got to say hi to him and meet him, but our schedules were not coordinated. So I wasn't able to do an interview. No, so Doug, if you're listening, I'm going to bug you again for another interview. I haven't I seen him do in that. years. I remember loving working at that studio because uh, they had a Mellotron. So I got to, got to play a real Mellotron. A pretty, pretty, and um, famous place, you know, through the nineties too. Was it Pavement that recorded there? I think, yeah, Pavement recorded there. There was a yeah. band called The Grifters that was from Memphis. Jack White recorded amazing. there too. Yeah, it was a cool Loco. studio. I mean, my memory of it is that it was maybe like an old movie theater, possibly, or I can't remember, or maybe it, I just remember it had a, it had a real recording studio vibe, like walking in, you felt like, oh, this, this feels like a classic recording studio. So that was a that was a really fun experience. Nice. Well, let's geek out for a sec, man. I'm going to dig in and and ask you for some geeky stuff. Okay. So, and you can't bail out by saying that you're not the engineer either. Okay. So let's I hope talk I about, don't disappoint you and no, your no, listeners because I'm, I'm I, you know my my I don't want to embarrass my myself. Never, never. I'm did. A technical drums, drums. Tell us. You know, how do you get an exciting drum recording sound? How do you get exciting drums on your record? Well, I think get an exciting drummer, first of all. I mean, that's, you know, that's probably a big part of it. Um, Is there a process that you go through? Is there like a mental process? Do you have a list of favorite drummers that you refer to? Do you start at the top and just call down and find (laughs) out who's there, you know? Well, I know some, I know, I know a lot of great drummers, so I'm, 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 I'm lucky to have have some really good ones in my, in my trick bag, you know? Um, yeah. And I've been really lucky to be able to work with some, some great drummers that, you know, that, that play music that can play really musically and, and, uh, and know, just know how to do it, you know? So talk about the experience and I don't know whether you're doing this often anymore, but you've got an artist maybe who's asking you to produce. They don't Mm -hmm. have a drummer. You have to bring in a drummer. Mm -hmm. What goes through your head when you're trying to figure out who you should bring in. Well, that that was that was the case with uh, this project that we're working on now. It's a band that is a group of friends that have known each other for a while and uh the 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 singer 
um, and main songwriter, his brother is in the band. And they, so they have a very tight, you know, that brother music con- connection, both incredible musicians. You're not musicians. breaking up families yet with your production style? No, well, <laughs> there, was a, there, there was a situation where I felt like we, they had done some previous recordings and we, we loved the tunes and there were some, there were some great production moments on the, on, on what they had done before. But I kind of felt like we could dig deeper into the drums and, you know, like, you know, maybe we could get some, some, some more, um, just some, some more exciting performances out of, out of, out of the drums. Uh, well, that drummer ended up, um, leaving the band. And so going into this new, um, these new sessions, we needed a drummer. Um, and the artist did, you know, he was taking a chance in letting me pick the guy. I had had a guy that I felt like would be perfect for it. I know that feeling. It's scary. And he, and it's exciting and scary as a producer because you're, you've got, you're like, your gut's telling you something, mm -hmm. but you're, your your fear factor telling you something right, else, right? You know? Well, you know, I I felt really confident that the the person that I wanted on the session would would crush it, and uh, he did an amazing job. And as I predicted, um, he got along great with the artist, and so you know, like kind of like you were describing, by the end of the six days in the studio, everybody's best friends, and you know, inviting each other for hot for Christmas holidays and stuff. You know. So. <laughs> Uh, so you're making went, Christian records. Then. So so it went well. <laughs> so it went it went it went really secular. It's like pure, purely secular. Right. But uh, so it went really well. How about examples? Um, have you had experiences where you picked a musician for a project, and it either didn't work out or it just took some settling in before everybody was confident? You know, probably so. I can't. Nothing's coming to you mind. You have to throw anybody under the bus. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nothing's coming to process. mind at the moment, but you know there. You know sometimes things are, are you know, are go more smoothly than others. You know, I've, I've certainly been in been in some situations where the vibe just wasn't right, um, and that's part of it. You know, that's part of the that's part of the process. You know, if if the and you also have to kind of go with your instincts there. You know, if the vibe is off to you, you know, it, that's part of your job. I think as as producer is to trust your own instincts. Um, and if the, if the vibe is off and you think that you can do better, you know, then it's worth trying um, if you can, you know, if, if time allows and budget allows and, you know, you're juggling all those different things. And All right. So you've got a great drummer. You're doing a session. Do you sometimes find that the drums uh, need to happen with a certain number of instruments and tracking so that you start with, you know, the core elements. Maybe it's a live vocal, mm-hmm. maybe it's not. Um, let me ask it like this. How often do you find that you don't want to have a live vocal at tracking, that you want to replace the vocal? Do you find if you had to sort of like say it was a certain percentage of the time, how often do you come back and do the vocals later and comp it and, mm-hmm. and even, you know, tune vocals versus... Mm-hmm capture a live performance that has to go down and it's like inextricably tied to the guitar, for example. I think, I think probably the, the majority would be the situation. What, what I like to do is set up a situation where you're, you're getting a live vocal that can be used 
if some magic happens. You know, just assume that this could be the one. Um, but also be open to the fact that you might come back and and fix some things or you want to have that. I like to have that flexibility so that you're not necessarily married to that live performance. But if that live performance is magic, then it's usable and you can feel good about the way it sounds and you're not struggling with it at, at mix, you know, so. What are some of the challenges with getting a live vocal? Um, or do you find that a live vocal often is paired with an acoustic guitar or equally as much with an electric or a piano or some other instrument? Well, some singers sing better when they have a guitar in their hands, you know. Have you noticed that? Like, you know, there, there are some singers that they're just, that's the way that they're used to singing. Yeah, that's how they learned the song. Yeah, and that's you just... You take the way, instrument away, it's like taking away half of the instrument that they're supposed to be playing. Right, right? and that's just part of it. So you just have to let that be the case. Well, so I've noticed maybe there's, you, there's maybe, two takeaways, I think, from that. One is that sometimes uh, the timing of the vocal improves when there's a guitar because they actually find the rhythm through mm -hmm. the playing of the guitar. Mm -hmm. And another is that the pitch of the vocal might improve, especially with an acoustic guitar, mm -hmm. because the body and the guitar resonate in tune with each other. Mm -hmm. You can still screw that up pretty royally if you put a pair of headphones on somebody, though. That's true, yeah. And I also, there's something, too. There's there's certain guitar sounds um, that I like that I, I hear on records, uh, even like electric guitar sounds. And I think part of what I'm hearing is the sound of the guitar bleeding into the vocal mic. You know, like an electric sound where you can hear the, where you can actually hear the, the pick, pick on the, the strings, the pick on right? The strings. Yeah. And it I'm just, glad you brought that up. And it just brings a certain sort of immediacy to that to that sound that there's really no other way to get. Yeah, I think that's true. How often do you have the amp sort of bleeding into the vocal mic? Uh, Hopefully I never. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I you know, I, I like to have, I like to have the control with, with that, you know, I like to, I like to have, if, if you're recording somebody singing and also playing electric guitar, it's my preference to put the, put the amp somewhere. A little further secluded, away, right? Yeah, yeah, so you can so you can have some control over that. Um, what about the vocal mic? Are there other instruments that are nearby? Are the drums ever close to the vocal mic and and speaking into the vocal mic? We'll certainly have done records that way. And again, it just depends on the vibe. I mean, if you're doing like a if you're doing like a garagey rock and roll record, then you want some of that bleed, I guess. You want some of that nasty nasty stuff. <laughs> you know that that's because it's part of what makes it sound live is part of what makes it sound, you know, like it's like it's happening in a room. Have you ever had that experience where you had a scratch vocal mic up that's picking up the drums and you're thinking you're going to, you know, mute it and replace the vocals later, but then you go mute it and, and the drums lose all their life and you're like, oh man. Oh yeah. That was like the perfect room mic. To totally. Totally. Well, um, I remember was... you used to do a, th you used to do a thing that, uh, you used to use a dictaphone. You used to, didn't you used to have like a little yeah the little mini, the crapster mic yeah the crapster yeah that was something I got from Brad Jones okay so yeah. we used to take a mini cassette recorder or a micro cassette recorder mm -hmm. and then you'd run a cable out of the headphone jack and that'd go into a DI so that you could record it onto a track mm -hmm. and then you just pop the tape into record and pause mm -hmm. and that mic and all the compression and everything would come to life. I haven't figured out how to do that with an iPhone yet. So it's sort of like there that are all be... these things that disappear with digital technology mm -hmm. while it, and we were talking about this recently, while digital 
opens up worlds of possibilities. It also accidentally removes other ones that used to be there, you know? Right, right. The iPhone is interesting because the iPhone does have its own particular uh, compression sound that is pretty cool on some things. Like, in, in, well, on the Wilco, uh, on the last couple of Wilco records, there's, uh, and probably on Jeff's solo record as well, the Tweety record, there's some acoustic guitar tracks that are we recorded, it, we recorded on, on first. an iPhone, yeah. That's great. That were, you know, like tracks that were built off of his initial iPhone um, sketches. I actually did that same thing with Will Kimbrough on American Itis when mm. I was producing that record with him. He had already started a bunch of songs and brought them in. It was a song that he had recorded with the mic before iPhones, and we just had iPods, and mm -hmm. we had the little clip-on mic. Mm -hmm. He had recorded the song that way, and I was like, this feels great. You know, let's just build the song around this. Mm -hmm. And th that kind of goes back to some of what you were saying before, how like, you know, how th things sound different to you when you have knobs in front of you versus how they sound to you when you're just listening, you know? And it's funny too, I think time and, and, and time and perspective kind of changes that. So, like the way you think something sounds versus the way maybe it actually is recorded or, or maybe, you know, you romanticize the way a certain mix of like one of your favorite tracks sounds, and then you actually listen to it in a different environment, or you pull it up in your session to reference against something you're working on. And you're like, whoa, I never noticed that that, that uh, guitar was so out of tune, or I never right. noticed that that tambourine was the loudest thing in the mix <laughs> and was played like, Kind of like off rhythm, you know, it's, it's all that stuff. What's wrong with those guys? Didn't they line up the waveforms in Pro Tools? <laughs> so much of that stuff just gets gelled and, and, you know, gels together in a way that you just allow it to happen as music. That sometimes when you're working on stuff, you, you don't allow it to happen. Does that make sense? Right, yeah, because you're you're focused on what you think is supposed to happen instead mm -hmm. of what's happening. Like I was, I, I pulled up a Queen a Queen track recently when I was working on something because the, the track we were working on had kind of a, there was sort of a kinship to to some early Queen. And uh, so I brought the track into the session just to, just to kind of compare and see. And I was like, wow, the vocal is really kind of buried. But he's singing with such, you know, you know, it's Freddie Mercury. So he's singing with such grandiosity and, you know, excellence that it doesn't necessarily feel quiet, but if you look at it, you know, technically, I mean, it's like, it's mixed much lower than a lot of vocals are. That ain't no Nashville country mix. Right, right. Um, well, you know, it's funny because there is that thinking too that says that a vocal with that much energy is putting that much energy in to just get over the band necessarily, right. you know? And so exactly. if it's mixed that way, it makes sense. Whereas if it's mixed too loud... It wouldn't sound, it, you know, it wouldn't match up. It's, it's true. Like you'd be yeah. yelling too loud. It's true. Yeah, it's it, it, exactly. I, th I think there is there is definitely something to that about with rock and roll, like not mixing the vocal too loud because then it makes the band sound, it makes Wimpy the band sounds right? weak. But if if the, if, yeah, if the vocal is, is kind of trying to fight through the, through the rock, then it makes the whole thing seem more exciting. Yeah, something... Similar to that, I've noticed, is when tuning vocals. So I've done a lot of vocal tuning in Melodyne, for example. 
And I've noticed that if I make a vocal sound right in tune, when it goes right to the note, now this, of course, doesn't apply for like auto-tune pop, which is like a whole stylistic thing. Mm -hmm. But for something where you're just trying to fix where somebody didn't quite reach the note, mm -hmm. sometimes when you fix it and you, and you help them reach the note immediately, you listen back and something doesn't feel right. And I realize it's because you're almost removing the human effort. Mm -hmm. It's like if they if they go to the note too easily, it makes the voice sound like it was relaxed. Right. And right. then the track might lose some life because it, it doesn't have the emotion because the person's just relaxed now. They mm -hmm. used to be emotive. Mm -hmm. Now they're just relaxed. Right. Know? So well, I think those are all important things to know. You know, a drum set that has been beat detected so that it's exactly on the beat might not sound like the drummer's trying so much to play right. that part anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny. I remember that when we probably first started recording and we got into using click tracks in the studio and we start noticing, oh, you're speeding up on all the fills and going into the choruses. And, you know, by default, it was like, well, that is, that's bad. You're not right. supposed to speed up and everything. Right. You know, not realizing that, Maybe you are supposed to speed up. Maybe that's what makes it actually kind of cool. That's that's part of yeah. That's part of the language of of you know why why certain styles of music are what they are because they have those pushes and pulls. They have you know it's just part of the vocabulary of it. Yeah, exactly. You're, it's you're the expression. right. You're right. It's like it's it's so easy to just kind of you know airbrush over all that stuff now. You know because, because you can right because you can so. Yeah, I think these are lessons that we're all still learning, you know, as we make records this way now is kind of like, and, and I think it, it's cool. There's there's a lot of really cool records that I I, I kind of hear it. I'm, I'm starting to hear a little bit more in the last couple of years. Um, I think the, the approach to using modern technology in a way that doesn't, that, that doesn't airbrush all that stuff away is there, there's an aesthetic that I'm starting to hear more and more with like younger producers and younger yeah. bands. I think it seems like there's more of an appreciation for. They're going to look at us like we were the eighties, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which the eighties were actually pretty cool. But yeah. you know, there was also a thing that happened where like records lost something to their sound mm -hmm. as in that transitioning period, you know, with the new, just the new tech and the new digitals and, mm -hmm. and all that stuff. Although some of that, like er, now, some of that, like early '80s digital technology is starting to sound like really organic, and <laughs> you know, it's funny. Oh man, does it ever end? Man, those Fairlight sounds are so like you know. All right, so we're about to take a break and, and come back in for the final jam session. But before we do, let me ask you this: Talk to us about recording keyboards. So. Tell us some of your favorite ways to record a Leslie organ, for example. Uh, I, you know, Leslie, I, we recently did a Leslie where the best sounding miking setup was just two fifty sevens um, on the, you know, on the horns, like not, and not miking the, the, the drum, but it depends on what you're doing. Like if you're doing an organ trio thing, you know, where, where the B3 is the, is the thing, then you would kind of want to get. You want to get some detail. Yeah, you, want, don't, you don't be throwing up no fifty sevens on Jimmy Smith right, for his session. Right. You want to you want to get you know you put you you put the you put the big dogs on there and, and get so them. what was the nature of the song where a pair of fifty sevens seemed to make good sense? Well, it was a it was a kind of a big rock 
song. So there was already a lot of electric guitars and, you know, there was some electric guitar and there was uh, piano and, you know, splashy drums. So it just needed, the organ just needed to fit in more of that sort of mid-rangey place and poke out when it needed to poke out. And But it, it didn't need to be like the main focus of it. Right. The, it didn't need to take a lot of space up. It just needed to be focused so you could just kind of hear that part cut through. Right. Yeah. Sound like more like a guitar probably in yeah. that case too. Yeah. Yeah. I've actually found that a pair of 57s is kind of perfect when I record the organ here too. Oh yeah. I've been doing that more. I was like, well, that's, that sounds great. I don't it need to get works. a bunch of fancy stuff going. That yeah. sounds killer. Yeah. Here right in the mix. Um, how about uh, some other keyboards that you use? You use a Whirly a lot. I know. How do you like to record a Whirly? I, I like Rockstar's a Whirly is a Wurlitzer electronic. The Wurlitzer electric piano. electric piano, the classic. Yeah. I, I, again, it depends on the track. There's there's times when just that really dry, warm uh, DI sound for Whirly I really love. Like if you're if you're going for something kind of soft, if you want something soft, and kind of that that pillowy kind of like you know big uh, soft Whirly sound. I like I like a direct Whirly. But if you're going to be digging in and you want it to growl, you got to you know you got to use an amp. And I you know a separate I, amp. Yeah, and so usually if usually if if there's Whirly on the on the tracking session, then I'll I like to have both, you know, like an early Meridian PV, for example. But PV, you know, funny, I just <laughs> picked one of those up actually over at over at Eastside Music Supply, a Silver Knob '70s PV. I saw it sitting in the corner, and I was like, I can't let that, I can't That's let that awesome. sit there. I got to take it home. I don't know what it is, but I I find that that a, a small Fender amp. And a Wurlitzer are made for each other. I just, you know, a deluxe, a Whirly through a deluxe is just kind of, that's that's the sound. How often would you just mic the built-in Whirly speaker? I've done it, um, and it sounds cool. Is that more of a lo-fi sound typically? or? Yeah, it's funny. It, it, if, if, it can, um, it can sound, it, it can sound pretty high-fi. It just, you know, the problem is you, depending on the mic, but, and, and, you get a lot of uh, key click, you know. But if you can, but if it's the right, if sometimes that's that's part of the vibe of the sound too, you know. Um, which method would you use if you wanted to get the most out of your low end? You needed to have a, a thick low end to your I sound. would have a direct, I would go direct. Okay. I'd cool. have a direct, yeah, to get that kind of real big, that big sound for, for, the, for the low stuff. All right, let's jump to piano for a sec. Mm-hmm. Favorite piano micings? Gosh, Favorite piano micings? I'm um, well, sorry. Let's uh, should be more specific. Lidge grand <laughs> piano. Well, we did a we did a session in in Chicago um, a few uh, last year, and we were fortunate enough to have two Neumann 49s on the scene, and that was a great sound. Is that the one with the red jewel on the mic, or is that the 50? Maybe no. The, the well, some of the some of the 49s have the jewel. I think it depends on the. The year, I think the earlier Telefunken 49s had the jewel, and maybe when it switched over to Neumann, I'm not that, that's, sorry. I'm ruining the I story. Like, who cares about the jewel? How did it sound? <laughs> no, the jewels are the jewel looks cool. The jewel does look cool, but that was an amazing sound. Um, and so you had a pair of those. So how would yeah. you mic up the piano with a pair of mics? Uh, well, that would probably be a better question for for Josh. He could tell you exactly how it was done. But just you know, stereo. I mean, stereo. Stereo miking, you know, one one 
for the low strings, one for the high strings. So one was kind of up near the keyboard part of the piano looking at the high strings, yeah. and the other was down near the far end looking out over the lows. Yeah, exactly. Not, not necessarily in under the lid looking straight down at them or, or at the hammers, for example. They were pointed pretty straight down from from what I from what I remember of that particular that particular piano, but it was also a great sounding piano, right? You know, so right. how about honky tonk piano? What are some favorite ways to record honky tonk? Man, I like a I like a fifty seven. I like a fifty seven just in the back, like pointed at the soundboard. You know, on an upright, on an upright, yeah. yeah. Um, Not many grands in honky tonks. <laughs> <laughs> Um, that's, I mean, that kind of does it or just something, something like that, like a, like a dynamic, you know, a, a good dynamic mic 57 usually works really well, you know, pointing it at the soundboard, you get the, it just allows you to not have too much, uh, too much mechanical noise from the piano itself, unless that's what right. you want, you know, right. unless you've like got like a tack piano and you want to hear, you want to hear that stuff. Can you describe what a tack piano is? A tack piano. Yes, it's when you actually take thumbtacks and press them into the felts of the hammers so that when the when the hammers hit the strings, they have that metallic attack. It's actually the thumbtack that's hitting the string. Exactly, right. Now, do you want to do this to your piano if you're not going to be using it as a tack piano tomorrow? I wouldn't do it to your Steinway <laughs> Grand, you know. The answer is supposed to be no, don't do it. <laughs> it's not, a, it's a, it tends to typically be a permanent... Yeah. Commitment, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, it can it can be, but I don't. Th I think it depends. I think you. I don't know if you'd want to just continually tack and untack and retag and untack, but I think you could get away with it. On, I like it, like it. You know, if you've got like an old cheap um, spinet or or upright that you you want to experiment with, I think you. Do you remember the modification that Brad and Robin had over at Alex the Great? Mm. So they had, I don't know if they built it or if they had somebody build it for them, but it was a metal rod that went along right. the, set, the strings, the harp. So it was above where the hammers would hit and then hanging, dangling down from the metal rod were narrow strips of leather that had a tack on the end of the leather, like, right. a, like a rivet or something like that, you know? Mm -hmm. And so each one of those would hang down exactly in front of each hammer so that you could just like drop it in place. Right. And you could kind of, you know, that's hit it. That's pretty brilliant. He didn't, didn't ruin his attacks. <laughs> um, all right. I know we got to jump to the jam session, but I got to just ask you two, favorite mics for recording electric guitars? You do a lot of electric guitars and amps. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, that's something that I want to know more about. I don't feel like I, I don't necessarily feel like I have, you know, found the, the magic, you know, I think recording electric guitars is hard. And, and, uh, I would like to learn from, from some guys that really know how to do it, but you know, 57, that's kind of the classic thing. It usually works, um, depending on what you're doing. I mean, I also really like the way, like, you know, like if you have access to a to a sixty seven, a Neumann sixty seven, that can be a great sound. You know, um, but ribbon mics, I have to say, I've kind of gotten into the way ribbon mics sound on a on a on a. I like to have both a fifty seven and a good ribbon mic around for guitar, and depending on what the vibe is, it can be a combination of both or. Or maybe it's just the rhythm or the ribbon or maybe just 57. How often do you get to the mix stage and you're like, 
God, why do we have to have two tracks for guitar? Now I got to make a decision. Do you yeah. guys, do you tend to try and commit those blends early on? Or do you find that you often show up at mix and you've got multiple guitar mics that you've got to sort of rebalance? I like, um, I like trying to commit as early as possible, but you know, I don't, I mean, there's certainly guys that probably have like, you know, four, you know, can end up with like four different mics on this one amp and, I, I don't like to I don't like to give myself that many choices. Two. I got in trouble for that once. You did? <laughs> yeah. You had four mics on an amp? Well, we showed up. Tom Lord Algae was mixing a record for us, a rock record, and we had mic'd the guitars with everything we could think of mm -hmm. every time. And then we were terrified to commit because we were like, well, he'll, he'll do something better. So right. we showed up and there were like four to six tracks for every single guitar overdub, of which there might have been like 12 on a song, you wow. know, or something like that. Right. And then the first thing he did is he went through and then he looked at me, he, he hit a few buttons and he discovered that like two of the tracks were the same track in mono anyway. Ah, uh, And right. he just like looks at me and he like <laughs> presses the button. I was like, uh, sorry. Are these, are these some early Pro Tools days when... These were early Pro Tools days. Yeah. yeah this was the time that, uh, that we went down there to mix for a couple of weeks and... I was so excited to be there in the studio. I just wanted to ask a million questions. So I was like the obnoxious intern practically, right, right. even though I was co-producing the record. And he uh, he gave me a t-shirt. It was around Christmas. He was generous. He gave me a gift. He gave me a t-shirt and it said, you have the right to remain silent. Yeah. So please shut up. <laughs> <laughs> and I still didn't even get it at the time. Right. It was great. So you were interviewing even back then. Man. I was interviewing even back then. Yeah. Just trying to learn stuff, man. All right, cool. Well, so Rockstars, we're going to take a break and we'll come back in for the jam session. Before we do, I want to remind you that you can find links to the stuff we're talking about in the show notes. In fact, I'll try and remember to do this. Uh, Pat was talking about using 57s to record guitar amps. And I remember seeing a video out there where somebody lined up like six 57s straight on the cone from the edge all the way to the center. And then on the other side, they did it at a 45 degree angle going all the way out. Mm. And then they played the guitar in and recorded that to like 12 tracks. So you can listen. They go through and they show you the exact same guitar performance, what each one of those positions would have sounded like. And it was pretty eye-opening. I mean, it, yeah. it, it might hurt a lot to listen to it too, because then you'll be trying to decide what to do next. But right, you mean just because there was so much of a difference in it each? Was, in it was each cool. Mic yeah, you position. really hear a difference yeah. on those. You know, you're oh, like, oh, yeah. that's kind of like it was almost like the difference between choosing pickups on your guitar. Right. It was like some sounded like uh, the 45 degree angle sounded a bit like the um, out of phase split pickups on mm -hmm. a Strat, you know, more like that. And some sounded more full. So I'll try and make a mental note to remember to uh, find that video and put it in the show notes. So many choices, man. So, so many, many mental notes, So dude. many choices. Yeah. Once you choose your mic, then you got to choose where you put it. I'm going to confess something, too. The only way that I even remember stuff like putting it in the show notes is when I go edit this interview and then I hear myself say this and then I write it down Right, and I remember to do it. So we'll see if I do that. Um, and then Rockstar's last couple of things. If you like the theme song to the podcast, that's my song, Black Sabotage. And you can go check that out at skadooshmusic.com. S-K-A-D-O-O-S-H music.com. And then if you'd like to get yourself a snazzy recording Studio Rockstars t-shirt, you can go get that at rsrockstars.com slash t-shirt. All right, enough with the pitching, Lidge. <laughs> this is Pat's moment in the, in the spotlight. All right, dude, we'll see you in a second for the jam session. Awesome. Awesome. 
Hey everybody, it's Lid Shaw, and I want to thank you so much for listening to this episode of Recording Studio Rockstars. I really appreciate you, and I really appreciate your time. And as a way of saying thank you, I've created a special mix tutorial just for you, Rockstars, totally free, called the Mix Master Bundle. With it, you get over two hours of detailed videos watching over my shoulder as I mix a song in my studio. Plus, I give you the free ebook that explains how I recorded the tracks, and you get downloadable multi tracks so that you can practice your mixes, including the Pro Tools session file, using nothing but stock plugins in Pro Tools, all of which you would find in any other DAW, whether you're on Logic or Studio One or Reaper. Maybe you're struggling with trying to improve your mix technique, or maybe you just simply don't have access to multi track files or can't record a full drum set in your studio. I wanted to give you a chance to create your own mixes from full drum drum kit, bass, and guitars recorded in my studio. The song is called American Winter, and it's off my instrumental record, Skadoosh, and it's all available for you totally free right now. All you need to do to get it is text Mix Master Bundle to 33444, and I'll send it directly to your email. Again, that's Mix Master Bundle with no space to 33444. 444, or you can go directly to mixmasterbundle.com, enter your email, and I'll send all the files directly to you. Thanks so much, Rockstars. We'll see you guys in the jam session. Cheers. Hey, Rockstars, we're back. We're going to jump right into the jam session. I'm here with my guest, Pat Sansone. Pat, are you ready to jam? Let's jam. All right, dude, let's kick it. What is the jam session anyway? Oh, I just going to ask you a bunch of questions. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so uh, when you started out in recording, what was one of the big things that was holding you back? Holding me back? Um, holding me back? What was one of the first things that was holding me I'll back? I'll throw something at I remember when I was checking out your bio, you had done an interview and you talked, you made a comment about the challenges, financial challenges and things like that of your twenties. Well, my twenties were, yeah, my twenties were, were, were tough. I mean, I didn't, you know, I spent most of my twenties like, you know, living month to month and kind of questioning whether or not I should even be in the music business. You know, I would have, I'd have times when I was, I, I knew that I was on the right path. And then times when I was like, what am I doing? Um, but I really just had to had to kind of barrel through and you know and grit my teeth through those times and just you know do it. I I um, did you hold some day jobs as well? I mean, you must have probably had to do that at the same time as music. A few, yeah. You know, when uh, there were you know there were some there were some temp some temp jobs that I had to get involved in for a like while. Like real temp. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I I just I I think I just knew deep down that that this is this is the thing that I'm best at in this world, you know, whether or not I'm whether or not I'm amazing at it, it's the thing that I can do the best from, you know, that You I, are. You know, so I'm just going to I'm just going to I'm just going to follow that instinct and just, you know, even if even if I'm broke as a joke, just 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 keep doing it. And I spent most of my twenties like broke as a joke. Um, and it wasn't until my mid thirties when I, um, you know, landed a, a solid gig. So yeah. Um, but I mean, like when you were going through that period though, and you're asking yourself, should I be doing this? Should I not be doing this? 
I mean, did you consider maybe I should just go get a job in something else? Or was it more like, um, I really want to do music, but why is it so hard? <laughs> I think it was probably more more of the latter. Um, I think in my, you know, in, in my early 20s, there was a there was a moment there where I was, you know, I, I did I did end up uh, I did go to college. I did get a, a bachelor's degree in philosophy. Oh, nice. and uh you, you know the most practical High dollar yeah. profession so so if music doesn't work out i can really just you know you like can ponder fall, your fall back on that philosophy ponder uh, up a dollar career. bill but but there was there there was a there was a a moment where i was considering like do i go the do i go the music route or do i go the the academic you know do i do the academic thing now um if i recall there was also uh sort of a record deal or development deal or something like that that you went through well too. i had a i had this it's kind of a long story i won't go into the 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 whole thing but i i had made a record i i the way i got into uh well my first studio experiences were in my hometown in meridian there was a uh, a fellow in in town who became a who was very instrumental in in me kind of falling in love with the recording studio uh, his name was Mike Bowles, and he had a studio. It was, he had the only recording studio in Meridian, Mississippi. It was called Big Oak, and he was a drummer, uh, and he was very involved with his church. He was like a you know it was and it was like a very musical church, and so he had um, he opened a studio. He bought a MCI machine uh, and and console from Randy Blevins, and and uh, <laughs> and. Uh, yeah, he set up a set up a small studio, and that's uh, he was just kind of doing. He was doing a like local jingles for for local businesses in Meridian, and you know if if you know there was a songwriter that wanted to demo some stuff, uh, it was just kind of he was just like up for anything really. Uh, my band at the time that I was playing in, just a you know bad heavy metal cover band that I was playing keyboards in, we went there to record a demo for the Battle of the Bands. And he saw me, this 13-year-old kid with a synthesizer. I was the only person in town or, or one of the only people in town that actually had a synthesizer. And he needed some keyboard stuff for some jingles he was doing. And, you know, so he started hiring me to, to do sessions. That turned into me working on and off there for, you know, five, six, seven years, something like that. Um, and... It was it was a great education because I learned a lot about how to sort of fake my way through different styles of music. You know, we might do a rock and roll thing one day and then somebody would need like an old school country vibe for something. And then we'd do some bad 80s jingle kind of thing. Um, and, and it also taught me how to be flexible in the studio and work with different personalities. And um, and so that was a great education from from age 13, you know, starting at about age 13 or 14, I think is when I started hanging out at that studio. Yeah, dude. That's awesome. I did definitely, I think that the high school I was at by the time I was about 17, I think, mm -hmm. had a little four track studio and I was beginning to see the stuff for the very first time, but not a real studio like you were in. It was cool. I mean, there wasn't a, there wasn't an abundance of, of awesome gear there. Um, but you know, having an MCI twenty-four track machine and that MCI console, 
I think the the coolest mic there, there was a 414. That was a good way to um, to kind of get comfortable in the studio. So by the time I, you know, by the time I had sort of moved on and was kind of working in, you know, sort of a broader arena, I had already been in the, I'd already been in the studio for a lot of hours. So yeah. I wasn't nervous being in, in a recording studio. Yeah. Well, I remember when I met you up here, um, there was a period where you were doing some recording with um, Richard Dodd and Joe Baldrich too. Mm -hmm. You guys were kind of finishing up or doing some mixing or mm -hmm. something like that. Yeah. Um, well, that was some, that was some material that I had recorded uh, in New Orleans when I was living in New Orleans. And uh, I had the keys to magazine sound and could, when, uh, when sessions weren't happening there, I could go in late at night and, and I ended up recording about a, um, I had about an album's worth of of tunes that that uh that I had. That was recorded your band, there. Birdie, wasn't it? Yeah, that was it. Was it was kind of done under the under the umbrella of that of that project name, but yeah. it was mostly me playing all the instruments except for drums, and I had some uh, Glenn Graham from from Blind Melon and uh, Greg Wazorek, uh, G Wiz, who G -Wiz, later yeah. later you know became the drummer for autumn defense and um he's he's playing on a lot of that stuff so i had i had a i had all this material that i had recorded there but then the studio closed and i didn't have final mixes of it uh and around that time i had moved to to nashville um ethan johns actually heard heard some of that material we talked about working together uh and um and yeah, it got somehow it got into the hands of uh, Richard Dodd, who was uh, who really responded to it and and loved it, and and uh, we um, talked about doing some work together. He he ended up hiring me to play bass on some things he was working on during that time, and and I uh, it was great working with him. I really he he was a great cheerleader for me. I'm looking forward to asking Richard to be on the podcast. Haven't yeah, done it you yet. should, man. I haven't seen him in a, in a while. I'd love to reconnect with him. Well, so what was some of the best advice you received through that whole transitional period, you know, with Mike and then Richard and Nashville? Mm, best advice. Richard's sort of always notorious for having lots of good advice. I don't know. <laughs> He's come up a number of times on the podcast already. And I can't rem I, I can't really remember anything specific. Um, I do remember I, I but I I did like being around him and 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 working with him on on the thing. You know, he he brought me on to work um on a uh on some recordings at at RCA which was really fun and um <laughs> I remember because I had done I had done a handful of things with him at his studio um and at um a couple of different studios in town but like his his place which was you know a small a small setup um and so I was just kind of used to sort of just showing up at sessions and you know I I mean I wasn't like a music row you know, I wasn't in the union. I, you know, I, I, I was, I had just come from New Orleans, everything where everything's fairly loosey goosey, you know, and you just kind of show up and do your thing. And I didn't have, a, you know, I didn't have cartage or any of that kind of stuff. So I didn't, I guess I didn't really have a concept of what this session was going to be like at, at, at RCA, but you it was just a, brought a little voodoo with you. Well, it was a, it was a, it, the, the, 
the the concept was to do like an old school country record, almost, but but with like a big ensemble, um, kind of like Phil Spector meets you know meets you know '60s Nashville, and it was really great. Um, but there were like three acoustic guitar players, like two electric players. There was a, a guy playing piano, a guy playing organ, I think. And my job was to just kind of be, just kind of do, I think I played some uh, electric 12 string on one song, but I remember he wanted me to play tic-tac bass, which is the, is basically like using a, a six string bass with a pick to double what the upright bass player was playing. So you get this, you get the real deep round sound from the upright player, but it, but but the bass lines also have this real sort of picky attack. Um, and Victor Krauss was the, was the <laughs> oh, upright <man>. player. <laughs> Trying to keep up with Victor. So, you know, so I show up and it's this like big ensemble with all these like A-lister players, you know, and I didn't even bring a tuner, <laughs> you know, I didn't even bring my own tuner. And like, so I had to like, I had, I had to ask one of these like, you know, session guys, like, you know, if I could borrow their tuners, I felt so embarrassed. <laughs> now, of course, you, if you got your phone, you got your tuner, right? <laughs> right. I, did, I, I was a little nervous, man. I felt a little bit out of my depth, but it ended up, it ended up being like really fun, you know? And Well, so that's a good story of, you know, when you were the, the young green newbie, um, the rookie showing up on the session with an experienced producer and engineer like Richard Dodd. But now here you are, let's fast forward to now. <laughs> And um, if you were going to give advice to our rock stars, how about sharing a recording tip, hack, or secret sauce, something that our rock stars could use today on a session? Hmm. They might not. It could, some, be, some, could be like some, a basic thing. Some secret you know, sauce. Well, something I helpful mean, or think, something cool think, and new. Well, I think one thing that, I mean, I know you, who knows, I might have even learned this from you. I don't know. But um, we were talking about headphones earlier and and vocals. Um I think headphones. Do you, do you notice this? That headphones do. If you're singing in headphones, it can sort of influence your pitch center. Oh, absolutely! You know? Yeah, and it's a it's a common thing. It's certainly not a secret that that I have you know invented or anything. But I don't even know that it's the fault of headphones so much as the fault of removing the instrument that you would have normally been singing along with. Mm-hmm. And and you know if you were sitting at the piano, you're going to play and you're going to find things that seem to sound good with what you're hearing come from the piano mm-hmm. or the acoustic guitar or the electric guitar because the amp's next to you. Mm-hmm. But we take those things away, you know, the electric guitar and it goes off and now you're only hearing it in your ear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that's what, you know, if 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 a, if a singer is is having trouble with pitch, I mean, the kind of, the, one of it's, and it seems to usually work like, you know, 90, 95% of the time is just to take take one ear uh off from the headphones and try that it seems to it seems to usually work so yeah uh, another trick that i remember Brad Jones teaching me was turn the bass up mm. the bass is the root it's the fundamental of the chord mm-hmm. and it's where the pitch reference comes from often in a pair of headphones mm-hmm. for somebody singing and hopefully sure hopefully the bass is in tune <laughs> and hopefully the bass is in tune <laughs> yeah. cuz he showed up at the session with a tuner all right, cool. How about a favorite hardware tool? Something 
doesn't have to be, uh, you know, a compressor or something like that, but just something that physical that you bring to recording sessions and you're sort of always glad you got it. Um, like a tuner. <laughs> yeah. Well, to, it's, it's good to have it. It's good, definitely good to have a tuner. Um, well, you know, it depends. I've been, I've been, uh, well, lately, um, I always like to have my Mellotron. I have the the Mellotron, the di- new digital Mellotron from Mellotronics out of Stockholm, the uh, Mellotron 4000D, which is uh, a pretty amazing instrument. I mean, for, you know, for the amount of money that they cost versus like what you get from it, it's, uh, it's, I think it's a value, but. Uh, Did you try and convince them to call it the Mellotron 4000 Autumn D? Well, there's a special edition coming out. <laughs> so we'll, that'll be available on our website. No, that's a good, that's a good idea. That's a good one. Though, Next yeah. time. Next yeah. time. But that's been, that's been great. And, you know, I mean, I think, um, you know, I mean, having, um, you know, something like one of, one of the classic, you know, like if an 1176 or an LA2A, I mean, I have, you know, if you've got one of those classic pieces around, even if, you know, if you can just have one of them, um, it's nice. It's nice to have the color, you know, that, 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 that can provide. Best tambourine. Man, I'm on a kind of a tambourine thing. I, I love tambourines and, uh, I have one. I have one magic tambourine that I always take. Try to always have have on the session, you know. But man, every tambourine is different. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and every tambourine man is different, <laughs> or tambourine woman. I'm kind of on a. I'm a bit on, on like a vintage tambourine obsession right yeah, now. Yeah, with the head on the tambourine or with no head. I I I personally don't. Uh, I don't have the skills myself to like really. Um, use a, a tambourine with the, with the I mean, head. there's none left, right? Roger Daltrey destroyed them all, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, the, the guys that can, that can, that can really do that. But for my purposes, um, the, the headless tambourine is, is the way, but I always, I, that's kind of a thing. Like when I, if I pop into an antique store or something, I, I always like to ask if they have any around because yeah. you can come up with some, some gems. So you mentioned the guy that can do really do that. That's Jack Ashford. From Motown. Oh yeah! If you ever totally. watched the Motown movie, was it? Uh, oh yeah. I'm gonna butcher St- the title. Standing, standing on the, in the shadows. In of the Motown. shadows of yeah. Motown, right? Um, standing in the shadows of Motown. Watch Jack Ashford play tambourine, and you're gonna see how it all came together. Oh, it's 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 awe-inspiring. Yeah. Um, all right. How about a favorite software tool, or just something that you've been really digging? Uh, well, the Universal Audio stuff is just it's so good. You know their plates are some pretty pretty amazing sounding. Um, How about the tape machine? Do you use that much? Yeah, yeah. The, does it remind you of tape, like using tape does, or is it a different thing? I think it's. I think it's. Uh, it, it, what's cool about it is it sounds it sounds kind of like tape. You know, I mean it's 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 fun to put on the. Uh, I don't really use it until. I mean, generally, I'll just use it um, on the on the master, on the two bus at the end, and see if it does something. You know, sometimes it's not right, but but sometimes it's just right. You know, it just it just adds it just adds the color that that you know you like. It's groovy. It's you know. Talk to us about your two bus chain, your your master. What goes on the master bus while you're mixing in in Pro Tools yourself? I don't really like to put anything on it while I'm mixing. Um. 
I don't I I pref- I personally prefer to mix um, without anything on the on the two bus and then wait in, until I'm really close until I feel like I'm 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 close to where I want to be and then I'll try the I'll try the tape plug in and see what that does you know um, a bit of compression but not too heavy handed but again it just depends on what it is sometimes you sometimes you need it you know sometimes you need a little heavy compression what might you use for compression well at our at our studio in chicago at um at the mixin administration uh we have a an allen smart even if you're mixing in the box you'll still go out and go yeah. through the real compressor yeah well, we we have a um yeah we we generally will mix um if We'll, we'll generally mix mostly in the box, but we'll but we'll send it through. Um, we have a dangerous the dangerous uh, D box mm-hmm. for um, for summing, and then that will go and that will go into the Allen Smart um, stereo compressor, and then that then we print that back into into Pro Tools. And then you might experiment with the tape at that point, yeah, something like that. Yeah, cool, cool. Um, and that's been that seemed that's been working, but. Uh, um, but you know, there's you also mixing completely in the box can can sound can sound great, you know. Yeah. Uh there was something that Jamie Tate once told me when uh, he was mixing a record for me. I asked him about how he mixed, and uh he's a great mixer, a friend of mine. I actually went to school with him. I'm looking forward to having him on the show too. Mm-hmm. He's got a studio called the Ruckus Room here in in Nashville. But he said he would, you know, use his stereo um compressor, his SSL. Uh, maybe it was an Allen Smart or something as mm-hmm. well, um, but he'd keep it in bypass and and then kind of bring it in a little later in the game, a little mm-hmm. later in the mix. Because in his words, it was like he felt like it made him work harder mm-hmm. toward the mix. And I think that that idea, that concept, can be a pretty cool concept mm-hmm. at any stage of recording and mixing. Is like, you know, use the tools in such a way that maybe you got to kind of work for it so you get as close as you can before you start leaning on the tool too heavily. Yeah, but then some kid comes along and just slams that piece of gear yeah. and it's the coolest sound it you've sounds, heard. It's, you know? And it sounds completely <laughs> awesome. I know, that's the thing. It's really, you know, that's why I even I even hesitate sometimes to, you know, because I don't profess to have, I don't profess to have the, you know, the the answers to, to any of this because it really is all about listening with your ears, you know, and not necessarily with your, with your brain, you know, and like the things that are supposed to work and the things that you know are going to work. I mean, there's, there's, there's stuff that you get, you know, you get a relationship with and a, and a method you get a relationship with. But like you say, there's like, then some kid will come along and do something that you would like, you know, your instinct would be to say that is completely the wrong way to do it. But then you hear it and it's like, man, that sounds... That sounds so killer. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah. Thank God for that. So, you know, that reminds me, you were talking earlier about um, recording vocals with Jeff, mm-hmm. uh, Jeff Tweedy, and you had a story about like sort of same things, like here's the mic that we're supposed to use. And then, you know, you know, yeah, well, some, some others. Uh, several years ago, we, um, he got, he, he bought, you know, one of the, the all-time great classic mics, a, a Neumann 47, you know, kind of one of the Holy Grail mics. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's it's not a, it's not a cheap investment, those things, you know. Nothing wrong with that mic. <laughs> yeah. And it's an amazing <laughs> mic and it's, and it's, and it's there at, you know, it's, it's still in the studio, but I think he tried, I think maybe he tried a couple of vocals on it, but it was just too, 
it, it was just maybe too too detailed or it just it just it just didn't resonate with him and so you know he he went back to the SM7 which is I think what he's he's done pretty much every vocal I've ever seen him do on an SM7 or or a handheld 58 nice because it feels good you know like there's you know there's some songs where he just need, you know he needs that feeling of having the 58 in his hands and it influences the way he approaches a vocal so I like that. And so would the handheld 58 be something where there's a pair of headphones on, or are we maybe listening back to the speakers and just kind of, you know, pacing around the control yeah. room a little bit? Yeah, just like speakers speakers on, 58 in the hand, you know, and the 58's got enough rejection, you know, to where, you know, you know if, if, if the speakers aren't too loud, then it's still workable. Um, you know, bringing up that pitch reference thing again, too, when you've got the speakers, you're feeling the low end, the bass, you know, all mm-hmm. that sound in this room. And it can be much easier to sing in tune uh, than with with headphones, you know, just by having yep. speakers going. In fact, when I'm working with an artist and somebody's in the vocal booth and it's like, oh, let's go put some harmonies on this. And they don't have a really clear sense of what they're supposed to do next. I find that you know, they'll go out and put headphones on and they get really disoriented trying to find the mm-hmm. harmony part. And I always immediately just, hey, come on in here, come on in here. And it's so much easier just sitting around in front of the speakers in the in the chair, you know, yep. and just like hashing out some ideas, turn the speakers down low, just sing along a little bit, then try and like make sure you lock in that idea so that it doesn't get lost between walking out to the right. mic. But um, same thing. It's just like it's, you know, you you quit thinking about it. You just start singing along. True, true, yeah. All right, so how about um, a resource for the business side of doing this? I mean, you've described a career path that was, you know, month to month at one stage to a, a point in your life where you're a homeowner now and you're, you know, you've grown up, son. <laughs> Talk uh, talk to us a little bit about the business angle of of uh, doing music for a living. You know, what advice do you have for people? Is there, gosh, you know, I I again, I mean, I I feel like my my trajectory has been, um, you know, if I look back on it, I mean, I I really just feel like it's a combination of of instinct and luck. You know, I mean, there, which is so much a part of it. You know, I I've been very fortunate very lucky to connect with a lot of the people that I've connected with over the years and, and get into the situations that that I've been able to, to be in. But the only knowledge and wisdom that I feel like I have has just been from me following my instincts, you know, following my, my heart, you know, and that's, that's a very abstract and kind of new agey way to say it. But, you know, I certainly don't feel like I have any, um, you know, supreme intelligence <laughs> about how to maneuver through this business. But I have just been, you know, I, I think following my instincts, making sure that I've been a part of things that I feel good about, that feel like they're actually resonating with, you know, on a on a personal level, on an artistic level, that has led me into the places where I am now. Have you bailed on things in the past that were not resonating with you, or did you just sort of instinctively just veer away from them a little bit? Yeah, I've had, there were, I've had some, like when I was, there were some times when I, there were some gigs that I could have taken. I'm not going to mention any names. No need to. But there were certainly some gigs that I could have taken that would have um, made my life a lot easier uh, financially, but I 
just knew that I would regret probably like, you know, at some point. And uh, those were some hard decisions to make when you're, you know, living month to month and, and, you know, having to sell some guitars that you don't want to sell because you have to pay some rent, Um, you know, but those were choices I had to make because I, I wanted to make sure that I was doing things that I was going to be proud of. So ironically, your business's advice is along the lines of, uh, it may be the best advice is to avoid some opportunities or, or be ready to make those tough decisions where you actually let go of financial opportunities. Yeah. You know? I mean, I think it's just, you know, it, you just have to, I guess that's what I was saying earlier, you know, it's like, listen with your ears and work with your heart, you know? Yeah. Um, just just be involved in in things that you really want to be involved in. Yeah. I've always felt on a gut level, like the very best we'll ever do is through contributing our very best work. Mm -hmm. And our very best work always comes from the things that we really love and feel passionate about. Mm -hmm. You know, we do our best work when something really resonates with us. Yeah. And you just go for it, mm-hmm. you know. And that thing that might come along that, like you say, you know, might might pay quite well or might look like it has promise, but if it doesn't resonate with you, sometimes it's hard to to know and identify that too. Yeah. You know, that could be that could take a decade. And exactly, and 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 you know the 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 positive uh, consequences of making some of those decisions, you don't you don't see you don't see them for a long time. Right, you don't realize that you know. Not until your last five minutes of <laughs> your deathbed. No, not really. That's well, pretty bleak. Before that. <laughs> um, all right. So now, how about a, uh, um, a cu- just a couple more? But how about an organizational tool? Anything you use these days? Um, you know, we've all got smartphones and computers and everything else. Anything that helps you keep your shit together? Uh, Obviously, you can't. You know, miss flights and gigs and all things like that. You know. Yeah. How do you kind of keep organized? And- I just try to I just try to to stay on top of the iCal. Like if I you know if I make a you know make a plan with uh, someone, just try to get it on there you know immediately. I think just the the basic stuff we're all using these days. You know, and, you know, file management is something that I think I'm still. I've learned some hard lessons over the years about yeah. that. You know, back in the early days of kind of doing doing work in, you know, in Pro Tools. I mean, I've got some some files that I still can't find. And uh, and so, which is not a good feeling. So, you know, I'm learning. And What's your safety valve now? I remember when we were at your house the other day, I looked over and I saw a pile of orange drives, you know? Yeah, I got a pile of orange drives that, and that I'm looking for a new method on how to, how to archive all that stuff into a more... Uh, you know, a more streamlined way. Chronosync is something that we've been using at our studio in Chicago. Yeah, I use um, it too. It's great. Yeah, I want to. I want to kind of get that going with my new scene, and I'm sure there's some even uh, deeper forms of of doing that in a smart way. Right now, I'm using Time Machine for the studio backup because it will automatically keep backing everything up. So mm-hmm. I'll just have OneDrive there, and then when I move things off to the archive drives. I'll just move everything to OneDrive and I'll use Chronosync to make sure that the second archive drive is matched to the first one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I take that home and put it in your tea. Isn't it, isn't, it wild, <laughs> isn't it wild? Like, you know, 
it's like the you know but the, i had to lose some stuff the to even come, get that far yeah it's so ephemeral all that you know the the nature of like digital information it's just like where is it and how yeah. can, and how can you lock it down you know yeah, and one of the frustrations about trying to figure out a method is that, like, it feels a little bit like taxes, you mm-hmm. know? It's like, I don't really want to deal with it, right. you know? I'd like yeah. to spend all day in the studio. I've recorded my brilliant thing. I'd like to go have a beer now. Yeah. All right, so now <clears throat> let's uh, let's jump to the final question. We're going to okay. give you the—we're going to take the way back machine here. So you're going to go back in time. Uh, experienced Pat Sansone is going to go have a chance to go tap young Pat Sansone on the shoulder. (laughs) Young Pat Sansone is going to turn around and go, first you're going to go like, first there'll be like, you know, a time-space continuum collapse because you're not supposed to do that. But then, (laughs) then assuming that we survive that, young Pat is going to say, experienced Pat, what is the single most important (laughs) thing I should know to become a recording studio rock star myself one day? What Mm. would you say? Can you can you ask me the question again? Yeah. What's the single <laughs> bit of advice you want to give yourself, you know, when you started out on this again? Always bring a tuner. <laughs> okay, always bring a tuner. I like it. Well, that's great, man. Well, we'll just leave it right there. <laughs> I love it. Um, well, so, Pat, thank you so much for joining us on Recording Studio Rockstars. Glad we got to hang out this no, long. It's, been, it's been, a, a, been a minute since we hung out this yeah, long. Even. It's been a blast, man. It's like, you know, me- memory lane. Yeah, bit of memory lane. I'm like looking around at, at 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 some of this gear that I know I've made made records with. Yeah, indeed. Uh, well, hopefully we'll do more of that. My place is your place. Let's do it. Let's do it. Um, let our listeners, the rock stars, know how they can find you, follow you, learn more about you. Yeah. Um, um, well, you know, check out the Autumn Defense. We're we're on Facebook and and Instagram and. Yeah, we're out there. We're, e- we're easy to find. And tell us the name of your super duper mix production company again. Oh, the, the well, that's the Mixin Administration. So <laughs> nice. <laughs> the, that's uh, that's myself and uh, and Josh Shapira, who I was talking about earlier. And what's your tagline? We're always recording. <laughs> nice, awesome. I wanted to make you say that, so now it's committed. It's out there, <laughs> rock stars. Okay, they can't change the name now. All right. Thank you, man. Great hanging out with you. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. We're going to see you around the studio or at the taco joint (laughs) or the coffee shop. How about all of those? All right. Sounds good. All right, man. Peace. Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, please leave a rating and review on iTunes to help reach more people. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to recordingstudiorockstars.com slash review for an easy explanation. And if you want more free content, all you have to do is text RSRockstars to 33444. Again, that's RSRockstars to 33444. And I'll keep you in the loop with articles, videos, and podcast updates. And I'll let you know about any upcoming giveaway offers, all totally free. Thanks for listening. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is Recording Studio Rockstars. Now, go make great music. Music.